Good morning. My name is Ned. The Old Testament reading today is found in Jeremiah 29, 10-14. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your futures, fortunes, and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, my name is Lauren, and the New Testament reading is found in James 4, 1 through 6. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know you're asking for what you have no right to. You're spoiled children, each wanting your own way. You're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and his way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? The proverb has it that he's a fiercely jealous lover, and what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful proud, but gives peace or grace to the willing humble. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Kirsten. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. Matthew 7, verse 7 through 12. Ask and you will receive. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door is open. Who among you will give your children a stone when they ask for bread? Or give them a snake when they ask for a fish? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your, will your Heavenly Father give good things to those who ask Him? Therefore, you should treat people in the same way that you want people to treat you. This is the law and the prophets. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. You may be seated. A couple years ago, when our two oldest children were a little bit younger, Sophia was six, I think Nora was four, maybe four and a half, I'm not quite sure, we were watching uh, that, that wonderful um, documentary or show, Planet Earth, and um, I was kind of you know, picking and choosing the specific scenes because I didn't want to freak out my young children. Uh, however, I failed utterly because the, the scene had me mesmerized, and it was a, a leopard or a cheetah or something like that chasing uh, uh, a group of deer. And, um, and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't pause it. I just wanted to see it. And, uh, and so, the, the, you know, this deer or gazelle or whatever is running away, and the leopard is, is chasing them. And, and, um, and all of a sudden, Sophia just blurts out, says, Dad, we've got to pray that God will protect the deer. And before I could say anything about praying over a pre-recorded event, <laughs> Nora blurts out, but Sophia, sometimes prayer doesn't work. 
And this was how I had to introduce them to the subject of why bad things happen to good animals. <laughs> you, you can see that life in our home is fairly complex. <laughs> I can't remember the answer I, I gave to them that day, but it's interesting how young we are when we recognize that sometimes what we ask for doesn't happen. Sometimes what we hope for doesn't come to pass. Sometimes the very thing we are sure that we need, we haven't been given. What do we do with that? How does that make us approach prayer? What, is, what does that do in our hearts when we, are, when we hear these words of Jesus that say, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, because often what comes ringing in our hearts or in our ears is this, well, I've done that and it didn't work. Or maybe in Nora's blunt words, sometimes prayer doesn't work. The Baptist theologian, uh, Dr. Russell Moore, he's been the president of Southern Baptist Seminary and is now working in D.C. uh, with the Ethics Commission, a wonderful man of God. Eleven years ago or so, he adopted, they adopted a couple boys from Russia, and he writes about this in his book, Adopted for Life. And he talks about the most eerie sound that they ever heard Walking into the orphanage, these are his words. Of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage in which we found our boys, one stands out above all others in its horror. It was the quiet. The place was filled with an eerie silence, quieter than the Library of Congress, despite the fact that there were cribs full of babies in every room. If you listened intently enough, you could hear the sound of gentle rocking as babies rocked themselves back and forth in their beds. They didn't cry because nobody responded to their cries. So they stopped. That's dehumanizing in its horror. Some of you have experienced scenes like this where you realize there's something odd about a baby not crying. And as annoying and as stressful and as painful as that crying sound can be to young parents... The cry of a child means something healthy. It means they believe that they're not alone in the world. It means they believe that someone who cares enough for them will do something about their needs soon. But the sound of an orphanage, the sound of silence in an orphanage, there you go, on cue. That was perfect. I hope it makes it on the podcast. But the sound of silence in an orphanage is eerie because it tells you that there are hundreds, probably thousands, maybe much more than that, of little babies around the world who have stopped believing that anybody cares. And when I thought of this, I, I couldn't help but think, is this why many of us have stopped praying? If this why, is this why when you ask someone, how is your prayer life, and they say, oh, I mean, it's strong to fairly strong, it's so, or weak, honestly, it's non-existent. Is this why when we talk about prayer, we kind of squirm in our seats because we have this uncomfortable feeling that we have been like the baby crying in its crib and nobody ever comes and so we are left to rock ourselves to sleep. Or maybe put it in your own situations. I've been left, Glenn, to take care of myself. I've been left, Glenn, to pull myself up from my bootstraps. I've been left to fend for myself. I had to pay for my own way through school. I had to work for my job. I had to do this. I did this. I did this. I did this. I rocked myself to sleep because I tried praying and no God 
came. This must have been what the Jews of Jesus' day felt. Imagine being a Jew who's gone through exile. We heard the Old Testament reading from the book of Jeremiah. This is the instructions they're given before exile. It's going to be 70 long years, actually a little bit longer than that, before they return back to Jerusalem. But even when they return back to Jerusalem, all's not well. They come back and what do they find? They, they find that the city that they love, the city of God, is in ruins. They find that the walls have been burned down. They find that the temple is nothing. And it's because they, in spite of their rebuilding efforts, it's not perfect. Nehemiah kind of rebuilds the wall. Zerubbabel works on the temple. But you know what? This temple looks like a shack compared to Solomon's. And they're heartbroken. They're heartbroken. It's that reason that the prophet has to say, trust me when I say that the glory of this shack is greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. And they're saying, yeah, I don't know if I buy it. Because look at this place. And it's this people who've gone through sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow, disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, delayed hope, delayed hope, delayed hope. And all of a sudden, here they are. Even when, they, even when they rebuilt their city, they were overrun by the Syrians. The whole story, if you ever read um, the apocryphal books, the book of the Maccabees, and catch up on this story of what happens when the temple is desecrated and they're overrun, all, all of this stuff, the Maccabean revolt, all of this happens in the quote-unquote 400 years of silence between Old Testament and New Testament. By the time you get to Jesus' day, the Jews are now being ruled by Romans and they have some sort of puppet Jewish king, but he's not really in charge. The truth is they're still under somebody else's thumb. And they're saying, really, Jesus? Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the do-. do you know how long we've been praying? I imagine that these Jews probably prayed the words of, of the old psalmist that said, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? All day and all night, my tears have been my food. How long, O Lord? You see, the Bible speaks to these kinds of human emotions in a very real way. It's not as if the people of this book knew a God who was Santa Claus who did everything that they wanted him to do. It's not as if this book is full of magical stories, of things working out perfectly. This book is full of stories of people who wrestled with doubt and disappointment the way you and I wrestle with doubt and disappointment. And it wasn't to a people full of simple faith that Jesus says, ask and it will be given. It's to a disappointed people that Jesus says these words. It's to a heartbroken people that Jesus says these words. Now we're listening. Now we're on the edge of our seat because we want to know. This word, these words weren't preached at a name it and claim it conference. These, weren't, these words weren't coming from a man in a million dollar suit with a million dollar jet boasting about his Bentley or his Rolls Royce. These words are coming from Jesus, the Galilean peasant teacher standing on the countryside, talking to simple folks, saying, I know you're hurting. I know you've been disappointed. But I want to say to you, ask and you will receive. Search and you will find. 
Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, whoever seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks the door is opened. Who among you will give your children a stone when they ask for bread, or give them a snake when they ask for fish? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Would you underline that in your Bibles? How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? This how much more is not God gives more to those who ask Him. That's not what the more is. I suppose that might be true, but that's not the way Jesus is using this phrase. The how much more is Jesus saying, you have an earthly picture of parents who love their children. Your father's even better than the best parent you could imagine. Your father's a better father than even that. That's the how much more. But when we look at this text, we see three very interesting verb forms. Now, even though I took a few semesters of Greek in seminary, I was warned by my professor to never in a Sunday sermon say, now in the Greek it says, number one, because Greek is far too complex a language to just open a dictionary or have a couple semesters and think you know what it means. So humble me. But number two, because it makes all of us feel like, oh, so I can't know what the Bible really says. The truth is there are a lot of good tools to use. And many of the more technical commentaries will, will expound on, on Greek, especially their verbs and participles. But these first verbs, ask, seek, knock, in the word, in, in the word biblical commentary, we're talking about this, that they're all in the imperatives. There are three imperatives. You remember grammar class imperatives? Go. Get up. The implied you. It's, the, it's almost like a command, like do this. There's a sense of urgency. Ask. Seek, you could put in your Bibles an exclamation point. It's an imperative. You've got to do this. Ask, seek, knock. It's almost like Jesus is saying this to a people that have been too burned, too, too downtrodden, too disappointed, and he's grabbing them by the, by the shoulders lovingly and saying, ask, seek, knock. And then these verbs are in the, part, are, are a part, in the participle form, which means they're basically, Hagner says this in his commentary, they could be translated in the present ongoing tense. It could be translated, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. As if to say, I know, I know it doesn't seem like God has come through yet. I know it doesn't seem like, like hope is near. I know it doesn't, but keep asking. Don't give up. Keep knocking. And then when Jesus says, it will be given, you will find, it, 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 uh, um, not, it will be opened. All of those verb forms are in the passive <laughs> sense. Again, I'm pulling on your eighth grade grammar now. Some of your school teachers are like, yes. Passive voice. What does this mean for us, maybe? It will be given. Why doesn't Jesus say, ask and you will have it? Ask and it will be given. It puts you in not an active posture, but it puts you in a passive posture, doesn't it? That with God there is no taking. With God there is no taking. With God there is only receiving. Does that make sense? You don't have a God who's clinging tightly to things so that you have to pry his fingers open and say, I'm taking my blessings, which is what's so absurd about the prosperity gospel movement. 
It's so absurd about it because it implies that there's a God who's got his hands like this and we've got to go take it. When everything about our Father, his hands are not like this. His hands are like this. His hands are like this. I've been trying to think of a way that we could take communion differently. Because technically the church talks about communion not as something you take, but as something you receive. And if any of you remember, if growing up in you know, very high liturgical churches, whether Anglican or Catholic or otherwise, Lutheran even, you remember going up to the altar, and what do you do with your hands? You do this. Why do you do this? Because we don't take from God. We receive from God. And so even our posture is one of saying, I'm empty. You've given freely. There's something here, even in this text, where Jesus is saying, ask, it will be given. Knock, it will be opened. But when we hear things like this, I wonder, which are we, what do we tend to be like? Which of these two choices? Some people hear this text and tend to say, okay, this is now license for all of my greed. Out of the greed of my own heart, I can now ask, because it will be, hey, Jesus doesn't give any qualifiers here, brother. I'm just going to ask for it all. Hallelujah. I once heard a Word of Faith speaker, and I was in the room, so this wasn't like on TV or something. I won't tell you where I was, but you could guess. And I was in the room, and he started talking about how he needed a private jet. Need. Such a subjective word, isn't it? And how he didn't know how to pray for this private jet. And so he remembered that when he was a kid, and this, this particular guy is from the south, and so he sort of said, you know, when I was a boy, my mama used to call me in from the fields or from playing out in the whatever. You know, he said, my mama would call me by my name. And then he said his name. I won't say it. And I'd come running in when I heard my name. And he goes, and then it came to me. That jet is mine, just like I was my mama's. And I just needed to give that jet a name so I could call it in by name. And so he named his private jet Willie. And he said in his prayer times, he would say, Willie, come to me. I'm not making any of this up. And he proudly announced to the whole congregation that day, all of us who were forced to be there that day, you can now really figure out where I was, proudly announced that he got his jet. Praise God. Later, he would be under financial investigation for using church funds inappropriately. Now, some of us hear stories like that, and you think, that's why I don't ask. Because I don't want to ask like that. But you heard the New Testament reading where James says, there's a greed problem in your heart and you don't ask out of the greediness of your heart. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase there, you know. You would not think of asking God, would you? That's because you ask for what you have no right to have. You ask like spoiled children. But I suspect that for most of us, we're, we're not like this preacher. Most of us don't ask because there's too much disappointment, too much silence from God. 
Martin Luther in the 1500s wrote this. He said, he knows that we are timid and shy, talking about God, that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to God. We think that God is so great and we are so tiny that we do not dare to pray. That is why Christ wants to lure us away from such timid thoughts, to remove our doubts, and to have us go ahead confidently and boldly. Luther knew, probably most of us wrestle with this, too timid, too shy, maybe this other word, feel unworthy and unfit. Well, I can't ask God for anything because, you know, I'm, I'm, I've just sinned just yesterday. Just yesterday I sinned, so surely I can't pray. Surely I can't ask. Maybe we don't want to ask because there's too much mystery in prayer. And there is a bit of mystery in prayer, isn't there? I mean, I, I wish I, could, I had down in my notes, tell the church what kinds of prayers God says yes to. <laughs> and then I realized, I, I mean, roughly we kind of know when our desires match God's desires, that those are the kind, roughly we know that, but spell that out for me. So which exactly are those? Because doesn't ultimately God desire our bodies to be well? Don't we know from God's original design of the world that he didn't make Adam and Eve with cancer? Don't we know from John's vision of Revelation that there'll be resurrected bodies where there is no more sickness and death? So we know that it, there's in an ultimate sense he desires this. So when we pray for healing, we, we're, we're Praying something that God is not saying, no, actually, I love cancer. We know that our Father doesn't say. But, but, but can we bring that into the exact situation and say, okay, so that means right now this won't be a sickness unto death? There's a mystery to that, isn't it? Never once in all of my forced listenings to Word of Faith preachers years ago, Never once did I ever hear anyone point out the fact that Jesus made a request that his father denied him. The Son of God, with drops of blood coming from his brow, said, Father, if this cup can pass. He trusted the goodness of his father enough to ask, but he trusted the goodness of his father enough to also follow up the request with, Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. If ever you feel alone in a moment of prayer where you feel like all you're hearing is deafening silence, church, you need to know that Jesus himself has been there. If ever you're feeling in a moment of prayer that you've, you're asking, and why is this weight not being taken from you? You can know that Jesus has been there. See, there are other religions that people make up that will promise you victory and blessing and, 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 and triumphant feelings every day. But only the gospel shows us a suffering God. Only the gospel shows us a crucified God. Only the gospel shows us a God who was strong, who was powerful, and who became low, and who became weak. And who became the one who was sweating drops of blood in the garden saying, take this from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What does Jesus show us about God? What is Jesus? Every text we look at here, we've got to ask ourselves, what is Jesus showing us about God? 
This whole sermon series, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you're opening your Bibles, you can see that we're near the end. We've just got a couple more weeks of this. We'll end in mid-September. What has this whole series been about? We called it arriving. Why do we call it arriving? Because Jesus is saying that God and his rule have come at last. God and his kingdom have come at last. Has it come in its fullness? No. But has it begun to arrive? You bet. And so in the person of Jesus, he's saying, look, Yahweh has kept his word. Look here, O Israel, remember the promise that Yahweh gave where he said his plans were to give you a hope and a future. Remember the promise when he said that you would not be abandoned. Remember his promise when he said he would finally come to rule on earth at last. Well, guess what? Jesus says, it is happening. The kingdom of God is coming. That's why the sermon begins with, blessed are you who are poor in spirit the ones who felt so downtrodden, the ones who felt so disappointed, blessed are you because God's rule is coming to you now. It's happening. It's happening at last, at last, at last. Jesus in his person is bringing the kingdom of God. Jesus is the kingdom bringer. He's bringing it. But you know, Jesus is not just... The blessing of Jesus bringing the kingdom... Maybe we need to think about it a bit more. What does Jesus do? Because he brings his kingdom in a very unusual way, doesn't it? Doesn't he? We thought, okay, well, if you are the kingdom bringer, let's see some fighting. Jesus is the great king who, instead of winning a great battle by killing others, defeats darkness by being killed. Jesus is the great warrior who doesn't take out his sword, but tells his followers to put away their swords. Jesus is the great king who says, blessed are the peacemakers, not, let's start a revolution. Jesus is the great king who, like a lamb led to slaughter, goes to his death. See, the death of Jesus on the cross Yes, it's about reconciling us with God. Yes, it's about forgiveness of sins. But it's also about subverting all the powers of death in the world. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, he said to the world, death will not have the last word. Not over Jesus and not over anyone who is in Christ. In fact, Paul stretches this out even more. He says, in fact, because God raised Jesus from the dead, this old world will be raised into a new kind of life. The New Testament word for this is new creation. Friends, I think if we understand the promise that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for us, I think we'd understand why Jesus is asked and it, has been, and it will be given. So, well, do you get this? I'm bringing my kingdom to you. You get to enjoy it. You get to enjoy the forgiveness of sins. You get to enjoy the life of the world to come. You get to hope and look forward to bodily resurrection. You get to hope and look forward to a world itself made new. You get to look forward to all of this because Jesus, the kingdom bringer, died and rose again. That's the kind of God we have. Luke, in Luke's gospel, 
uses this same phrase and fills it in a little differently. He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give you the what? The spirit to those who ask. Who is the Holy Spirit? Many of us maybe grew up or were around churches where you never heard that talked about. It's like Christ, 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 which is great, great, great. But nobody ever said, do you know Jesus says, it's good for you that I go because the Father will send another. And who is this other? The Holy Spirit. What is Jesus saying? See, the blessings of the kingdom that we will be freely given is the Spirit. And what does the Spirit mean for you? Well, for one, he's called the comforter, which means as you grieve in the in-between moments, in between the now and the not yet, the kingdom that has come and yet not come in its fullness, in between this, yes, death has been defeated, but really death will be defeated when Jesus returns. What do we do in this in between? Well, the Spirit becomes our comforter. The Spirit becomes our guide. The Spirit's the one that teaches us in all truth. The Spirit is the power of God to live according to the rule of God. So here it is, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been talking about all these impossible ways of living. He's been saying, when you get struck on your cheek, turn the other cheek, you're like, no way! He's been saying, don't judge. He's been saying all these different things, and we're saying, how? Impossibly! And now he says, ask for the Spirit. Ask for the Spirit. The only way we can live according to the rule of God is to have the Spirit of God working in us. What kind of God does Jesus reveal? What kind of God does Jesus show us? In a phrase, you could say that Jesus shows us a good Father. A good Father. Jesus embodies in His living and dying a picture of a God who has come at last. The God who did not stay afar. The God who from Genesis came looking for Adam in the garden. See, so many human religions begin with man's search for God, with the philosopher's quest, with the teacher's trip to the mountain. The Bible begins with a story of God's search for man. It's beautiful. Next week we'll talk about the struggle when someone says to me, Glenn, I'm going to explore all religions and decide for myself which is right. I understand that. I really do. But I just want you to be struck by the beauty of the gospel that doesn't set you above faith, but sets faith above you. That the mystery of faith is not that we have decided which one makes the most sense. The mystery of faith is that we've been given this remarkably beautiful faith story it says God came looking for you and you were trying to hide it says God came and died for you when you insisted on treating him like your enemy Jesus says this is the kind of God you have this is what God is like in case you were wondering in all the years of silence in all the years of doubt in all the years of disappointment in all the century after century of defeat from, from Babylon and from the Syrians and from the Romans in all the years of being pushed down and beaten up in case you've forgotten who your God is let me tell you 
He's a good father. And he's a father who hears. John Calvin said, Nothing is better adapted to excite us to prayer than a full conviction that we shall be heard. What keeps you from praying? What keeps you from asking or seeking or knocking? Is it because we don't really believe that we will be heard? Our Father hears. Moreover, our Father knows. Our Father knows. This is what we trust. See, we trust this because it allows us to say, okay, I know that you hear, I know that you know, I know that you are good. And so even when the specific thing I've asked for is not answered, I'm going to trust that your will is better than mine. This is why Jesus, I think, prays the ultimate, models the ultimate way of doing this. Matthew's gospel carries on from Matthew 7. It goes on. It shows Jesus again in the garden saying, please take this from me. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. That's a person who trusts the goodness of his father. Let me say this to you, church. It's because of the goodness of your father that you ask and seek and knock. Not because of the greediness in your heart, but because of the goodness of your father that you ask and you seek and you knock. But it's also because of the goodness of your father that you're able to say, but not my will, but yours be done. Because you trust that his will is not going to be ultimately destructive. You trust the words that he spoke to the people going into exile so many centuries earlier where he says, trust, even as you're being chained and dragged off, trust that the plans I have for you are good, that they are for a hope and for a future, that in an ultimate sense, Timothy Keller, the pastor in New York City, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, says it this way, he says, God answers the prayers that we would pray if we knew everything that God knows. <laughs> now, some of you can hear that and be like, well, then I'm not praying because I don't know everything he knows. I think it's the other way around. I think it's the out of, because I trust the goodness of my Father, I will ask, and I will seek, and I will knock. And because I trust the goodness of my Father, I will say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Ask for the Spirit each day. Seek for the rule of God in every area of your life. Knock, for the door has been opened to you. Sometimes as a parent, I'll hear um, one of my children, usually the younger ones, growling. Jonas the other day, you know, he does this frequently. He's like in his room. I'm downstairs. And he's like, Arr! and I want to say, remember Daniel Tiger? Use your words. Use your words. Every parent knows this, right? So many times I want to say, son, ask. What do you need? I can't get my shirt off. <laughs> we can take care of that. It's not a crisis. (laughs) 
My parents are sitting here in the front row. They just moved here from Malaysia. They've been pastors in Malaysia for 18 years. They had an amazing send-off from their church, and they now live here in our house. And um, and graciously, they're, they're in the basement, and there's a door to the basement. And I was talking with them because I know how my kids are. And I said, yeah, if you don't want the kids bothering you, just you know, shut the door. Uh, it's okay, you know, like it's all right. And they said, no, 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 no. They can come anytime they want. I said, well, I mean, just, you know, I mean, you shut the door. Hey, it's okay. You know. <laughs> I, said, I don't think you know what you're saying. <laughs> and it may change, but their answer for now is, We've been waiting for years to live with our kids, grandkids. Tell them to come down anytime they want. I think that's the heart of our Father. So I've been waiting for years for the Son of God to make you children of God. I've been waiting for years for you to come home. Now that you're home, ask, seek, knock. It's open. What you'll find is not an angry Father but a loving God. Jesus, above everything else, wants us to know this picture of God. Jesus, above everything else, wants us to see this kind of God. 